I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and one of my just favorite, favorite, favorite authors of all time is here with us today. Elizabeth McCracken is the author of seven books, including The Souvenir Museum, Bolaway, Thunderstruck and Other Stories, and The Giant's House, which was a National Book Award finalist, and also one of my favorite novels of all time. Her stories have appeared in Best American Short Stories, won three Pushcart Prizes, a National Magazine Award, and a No. Henry Prize. She served on the faculty at the Iowa Writers' Workshop and currently holds the James Mishner Chair for Fiction at the University of Texas at Austin. It's so good to see your face. Yeah, it's so nice to see you. Yay. I last saw you in, in a restaurant on Midtown, a Breeze Side. Midtown. We would, I mean, I don't know when life will ever get back to that way of doing things. Like, so I profiled you when, when Bolaway was going to come out for BuzzFeed. And we went to this just like very generic Italian <laughs> restaurant that was just packed. I don't know who all those people were. That's right. They're just out, out in public breathing on each other. Every, everybody was breathing on each other. I can't even imagine. Me neither. So when I was reading The Souvenir Museum, which is your new collection of stories, I wanted to think about like, how is this carrying on the things that um, I come to expect from Elizabeth McCracken, which is distilled into a sentence. It's something like finding the humor and the grief in the everyday. Aww. And um, it seems like uh, this is incredibly <laughs> on brand and on track. <laughs> I was going to say, which is wisecracks and and bathroom humor. I, I did love the uh, scatological stuff. It's it's worth mentioning because I went through each of the stories and kind of picked out some of my favorite moments, just so listeners can have just some sort of sense of of what the writing is like. 
And the very first story takes place at an Irish wedding. And well, why don't you tell us <laughs> about the scatological humor there? <laughs> this is, it's based partly on the fact that I was once at a dinner party with my husband, Edward Carey, also a writer, notably English. And we began to tell stories from his family. And there were like many, many stories about significant shifts in his family, <laughs> many of which actually had been named like mythologically. Um, and it was very funny, like people who you wouldn't think would, would laugh at bathroom humor had tears running down <laughs> their faces. Um, and this story takes place with a, it's a, a couple who are pretty young, who are going to a wedding at a big house in Ireland, um, in a, a giant house that uh, the couple who are getting married are remaking. And I guess it's about, among other things, sort of getting thrown into the strangeness when you meet somebody's family and friends and you have zero context for anything. And uh, yeah, what a family to get to know on zero context. It, and I have to make clear, not my in-laws in any way. <laughs> the, the house is based on the house that I know, but the characters are all imaginary. Okay. <laughs> this is the, our, our first encounter, of course, because it's the first story in the book, with Sadie and Jack, characters who we meet over and over again in a variety of stories. And this time, I thought, I was going to say we think. I don't know what you think. Um, but I think that Jack is such an asshole. I want to wring his neck. <laughs> As we meet them again and again, we, we kind of learn that this is not a fixed position. <laughs> Tell me about introducing and then reintroducing them again and again. It's funny because this, maybe this is the third story that I wrote about the two of them. And so... I felt I knew he, he, he wasn't an asshole. Yeah. There's also, I guess I thought a lot when I was writing these stories in general about what it means to be out of context and that Jack, cause it's his family, it's his family wedding. Um, and that he is both out of context cause his actual life is with Sadie in Boston, but put back into his family context and it's, it's always confusing to see somebody whom you love being completely different, surrounded by other people. Again, yeah. this is not, not, <laughs> not based on any actual, actual person or event. I wrote, I think there are five stories that are about Jack and Sadie. And I ended up writing them both because, frankly, I had a deadline for a short story collection. <laughs> um, and I knew I had to draft a bunch of things quickly so that I could then revise them at leisure. And then once I started writing about them, there was just like this pleasure in starting something that was new, a new story, but that I already had information to start it with. And it wasn't like continuing in a, in a novel. It had that pleasure of thinking, oh, this is, brand, this is a brand new thing, a completely different thing. I'm gonna do everything within 25 pages but I knew them. And that was really, that was deeply pleasurable in a way that actually surprised me when I was, when I was writing the stories. 
After the emotionally draining year we all endured in 2020, there seem to be positive things on the horizon in 2021. It's time to take what we learned in 2020 and start heading in a new direction. That's why instead of just celebrating a month of mental health awareness, it should be our priority all year long. Take the first step with online therapy. I don't know where I would have been without my online therapist this year. And I know that my husband feels the same about me and my therapist. Um, so, so thank you. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform that has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more. Your therapist can help you set and achieve your goals. Talkspace is a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. Instead of waiting for an appointment, you can send unlimited messages to your therapist 24-7 and then engage with you daily, five days a week. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code MARISREVIEW to get $100 off of your first month and show your support for the show. That's MARISREVIEW and Talkspace.com. And I think as a reader, by, by, we get, by the time we get to story five, we, we have collected so much information about them that the fact that they've they're honeymooning across the street from the Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam feels like yes that's very exactly what I would picture for them. <laughs> I have to say that while no characters are um, based on real people, many locations are, and my family and I did in fact stay in a houseboat directly across from the Anne Frank Museum. That, that has to affect every thought you have. And, um, <laughs> like, there, and there was, I think I put this detail into the story, there was literally a small framed picture of Anne Frank in one part of the house. I mean, and, and I love, I mean, the, so in terms of things I found different, th there was a lot of Judaism in this book, Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah. I have one book that Niagara Falls all over again, which is partially about my mother's family, which is um, uh, the, the Jews of Iowa and specifically of Valley Junction, Iowa. Um, but it's more historical. And uh, yeah, there's, I think largely because of Sadie, who has, a, as I do, or did a Jewish mother, um, it's very strange to not know like what tends to use Right. I'm still around. My beloved mother is not. Mm. But something that that interested me, and I mean, in, in, in every good way, is that when I got married and I married somebody who wasn't Jewish, I thought, is this going to make me feel less Jewish? <laughs> and the fact is, oh, it didn't. It was, it was very interesting. Um, and there's definitely a lot of that going through this book, I think. And even um, in the second story, we get the rare Scottish Jew. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love the, the background of this story is that he was raised somewhere near where you were raised. Yes. Um, and ran a department store with his brothers, Levine's, which is really funny to me because my grandmother's uncle was Barney of Barney's. So... <laughs> 
Wow. My, um, my grandparents owned stores and Grand Jacobson's of West Des Moines. But I also like, I knew everybody in Des Moines. There's also Ann Bedauer of Bedauer's. <laughs> no, it's not quite Barney's, but you know, Bedauer's was very big in Des Moines. Fair, fair. <laughs> and so many of the stories in the collection, not all, are loosely organized around travel. Tell me about what travel does to characters, family members, new situations. Well, certainly it makes me write short stories. And at this particular moment in my life, I'm like, am I gonna write another short story? <laughs> yes, I know, I'm thinking. Somebody asked me that recently. I'm like, I gotta go on a trip. I, I need to be out of Texas to be able to write another yeah. short story. I've written my Texas stories, I think. I, uh, I love travel. And one of the things, that, I think both one of the reasons why it makes me write short stories and why I, I like writing short stories about people who are traveling is that everything is sort of brighter and significant. And you mistakenly believe that everything is representative when you see it. Um, there's nothing quite as astonishing as like going into a grocery store store and seeing the deodorant section <laughs> in a foreign place, a place that is foreign yeah. to you. And I, lo I love that feeling and it's wrongheadedness at the same time. I find it delightful. And that, that sense that everything is meaningful when you travel. Yeah. It's freighted, freighted with meaning, which it's entertaining to write about characters experiencing that. And then there's like day travel. <laughs> which is maybe even more fun. So I'm thinking about Robin Crusoe at the water park, which is just such a stunner. Well, there's, there's also a story about that involves Legoland. Yes. There, there are a lot of places for, for kids to go, I guess, in, in, in this collection. Yeah, there are, I, I think of myself as not a terrifically autobiographical writer, <laughs> except for sort of like yeah, it's basically me complaining about have to, having to go to Schlitterbahn, <laughs> an actual German-themed water park. It's a chain of them, as a matter of fact. I can and never also... tell with you if something <laughs> is based on something real or just imagined um, in your exquisite mind. So, okay, great. Good to know. <laughs> 90 per I'm, I'm actually a, a tremendously realistic writer in most yeah, of it. Anything that you sort of think, um, oh, that's not real is probably real. Although I, I realize I'm saying this to somebody who has identical twin brothers who are Jewish policemen on the same police force, correct? They're not on the same police. They're not. But still, I sort of think like that's statistically unlikely. Yeah. I mean, it exists in real life. It happened. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to those things where you sort of think, what? No, really? So those are the things I like to write about too. Yeah. And even when we talked about this with Bolloway, I just didn't think that um, this disaster was real. I hadn't. And then, and then of course I talked to anybody from the New England area and they're like, oh yeah. Did you check with your husband? He I sure did. Must know I sure did. Um, <laughs> it, it's so funny. Tell me a little bit about 
putting these stories together for this collection and thinking about how one story relates to another and how they come together as a whole. Yeah, it's, it's always a really interesting experience because you see the things you do over and over again in short stories and you see family resemblances. Sometimes that the, the things you do over and over again are, are quite pleasant to see because you think, oh, this story speaks to that one. And other times you think, I have a single story. <laughs> writing it. That was actually one of the pleasures of writing five stories that were connected by characters is that as I was writing them, I could sort of muscularly say, I'm gonna make this completely different from the last story in a way I don't normally do when I'm writing standalone stories. Um, and so when I pulled them together, the first thing that happened is that I had about five stories and there were too many stories about middle-aged people on boats. It's like, <laughs> you know, connective collections or short stories are okay. But that's, that's a bad theme. <laughs> middle-aged people having revelations on boats. Um, and so I, I put aside one and then I tried to separate the others. But I did sort of consciously think at one point that the book would be about travel because if I didn't consciously do that and it just looked like a mistake, then I would be unhappy. So I, I began to think more about sort of travel as a theme. And there's this Brenda Shaughnessy poem in its entirety, which is the epigraph for the book, um, and I, which is called uh, A Map of Itself and it is in its entirety, the idea of travel, the very idea. And I remember when I was reading that book, which I love and hitting that poem, I thought, my problems are solved. I'm gonna make this my epigraph. And it will, it will make clear that, well, it won't make clear that I did everything on purpose. It will give the illusion that I gave, <laughs> I did everything on purpose. And of course, all the more poignant today. Yes, I that was a total accident. What would it be? And that was a total accident. What a dumb thing to say. I did not know that we wouldn't be able to travel. It's shocking I didn't know that, but it is, and I have thought a lot about that, that, um, that these are, I think that it's true that any place represented in this book is a place that I've traveled to and stolen from. Um, <laughs> I don't think there's anything that I've written that, that's, that's not true um, location-wise. And gosh, do I miss traveling. Tell me about this past year, like teaching from home and writing from home and mothering from home. <laughs> <laughs> mothering in place. In place. Um, it's, you know, I always feel I must start by saying I've been incredibly lucky. Um, I live mm -hmm. and am married to somebody who whose schedule is flexible, who um is also just a flexible and lovely human being and so I keep thinking about wouldn't it be awful to be stuck in a house with people you didn't like um that just seems like the worst so I I live in a house full of people I'm delighted to be with all of whom are you know somewhat sedentary and um misanthropic so <laughs> We spent all time going. This is all right, actually. We don't miss people. My my daughter Matilda misses people a little more than other than the rest of us. Um, 
so that's been lucky and that we have work that we can easily do from home. Uh, Edward and I have rented uh, workspaces. This is our second one that I'm, I'm talking to you from, which has made also a big difference because I do also think you know, that probably both of us would be going nutty without the ability to be by ourselves as well yeah. for, for a little bit. Um, teaching is interesting. Um, I really love my students and I really love teaching. And I so miss being able to, to look at them meaningfully. And by meaningfully, I mean like witheringly. As well. <laughs> like, knock, knock that off or what are you talking about? Um, but also encouragingly, um, I miss the small talk you have before and after class, which no matter how you try, you really can't duplicate. I miss, um, I feel like there's this thing that, that happens in group meetings, um, whether it's a class or anything, where suddenly you're like looking at people like they're on television. And sometimes that means they, they, they just talk too much. <laughs> and me too, I think. I sort of think, oh, it's my time to talk. I think I'll, I think I'll talk in paragraphs. I miss, I miss touching the same table that people are touching. Yeah, is that, it changes a conversation. It really does. Um, and I don't know if you've been reading digitally more this past year, but I think that changes my entire experience of, of reading something. I, I miss pages. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that. Like uh, many people, I have spent a lot of money going, it's my patriotic duty. to. So I actually have stacks and stacks of books that I'm really looking forward to that I haven't read because I've just been doing that. Um, when am I, Austin is blessed with a bunch of wonderful independent bookstores yeah. and I have been shifting around them, and, but my favorites is just up the street from me, Book Woman. And um, I just keep ordering like, it's not me buying things for myself. I'm going, I am a good person because I am supporting an independent bookstore. The present that I get that I want, that's, that's inconsequential. I think that's the greatest racket about independent bookstores. You can be like, you're doing a good deed, as they would say at Housing Works Bookstore. Um, and, and when you are anti-capitalist, but pro-shopping. <laughs> what a... I'm very comfortable in that spot. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I was thinking about um, when I was reading the story, A Walk Through Human Heart, is that I was so glad that it was set in vintage stores because that's one of my favorite things for you to do is to take us on a journey <laughs> into the into the past, into the soiled baby dolls and Pez dispensers. <laughs> I, I mean, that really is like a, a little assignment I give myself so I can indulgently describe like a, a macrame owl. I have to say <laughs> of the, I'm not one of those writers who thinks you have to kill your darlings and I make I write lines all the time and I think that's that's objectively funny. Anybody would find that funny. And a line about a parliament of macrame owls, I just think 
you could put that on my tombstone. I'd be perfectly <laughs> happy to have that as my mysterious, my uh, mysterious tombstone. Yeah, I love, I love objects and I love, I love things that have not necessarily been taken great care of. And I did as a character in that story, desperately want a baby alive doll. Was that what they're really called? Oh my gosh, yes. Wow. And then of course, if you juxtapose that with any sort of grief, it's like, fuck. <laughs> baby alive. Baby yes. alive. And then my my very favorite story, I have to say, was It's Not You. Because every now and then you write something that feels like it was made for me or some version of me. Oh, and I first, heard. 90s, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> 90s nostalgia, nostalgia for just pre-internet times is so real especially now because we're on screens every moment yeah i often tell my students that i i feel sorry for them that they don't know the pure thrill of an all-nighter when there was nothing to do overnight when you might not have cable television, when there was no internet in your house, when grocery stores were closed, mm -hmm. and the thrill of doing something all night long, whether it's working or staying up, um, I miss that. There's no way to recreate getting that caught up in your own ideas. It's true. And then of course, I think you say this about Sadie too. I was for for a moment I was wondering if the narrator in in this story is Sadie, but she is not. Um, but but there, the idea that the great tragedy in your life at in your twenties is some love affair gone awry or some man treats you not so great and feeling so entitled to have this better thing that that should be looming in the distance and of course you i mean you've you've written my favorite spinsters <laughs> tell me how tell me a little bit about it's not you and, and how that came to be um so i because i often write things based on places i've been my family and i were staying in this crazy hotel in houston called the Hotel Zaza, and somehow we got upgraded to this over-the-top uh, suite uh, that was two rooms and seemed unbelievably fancy to my children and very fancy to me as well. Uh, and I was thinking about my lifelong love of hotel rooms, and I did as I was young. I, I I've, oh, I miss hotel rooms so much. Yes. That's one of those things I, I miss. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Better person than me would miss, you know, human beings and, you know, group, group activities. No, I want a hotel room and room service. Yes. yes. So I, I was thinking about that. And when I was a young woman, I did check into hotel rooms every now and then just to be somewhere else. And I listened to a lot of radio. Somebody pointed out to me that there are two radio stories yep. in this in this collection as well. And I really listened, I listened to a lot of Larry King. 
um, overnight. Huh. When when he was when he was a, mostly a radio guy um, before he was on on cable television. And I was also thinking about those moments when we're much younger, where something feels like the worst thing that ever happened to you. And it is the worst thing that ever happened to you. That it is not, there was no part of me that wanted to think about myself being upset when I was younger and think, oh, you should buck up. What's wrong with right, you? Right, right. Um, I felt huge sympathy, even though I couldn't quite remember the quality of feeling like that. I remember that I felt like that. And I was sort of interested in writing about that from a distance. And I think also in some ways missing that sort of intensity, my, my own interest in my interior in that way, because I think that does go away or it's gone away for me. I think, I think that's, I mean, I lived alone for a while. And so <laughs> I, I think it's more conducive <laughs> in that regard. But I, I, the idea that the narrator um, has set aside this liminal space and time to wallow is something that I think I really used to do a lot. And, and um, whether it's because it was in the 90s or because, <laughs> um, because I, I live with someone else now, it's just not the same. I mean, it's funny, it didn't occur to me, I think you're totally right, that part of it was, it was the 90s. It was, I mean, I'm sure that people do still wallow and they have the intensity of, um, of feeling it's not that I think of oh, these young people today <laughs> they're all okay today they're all fine <laughs> um but my guess is people do different things with their feelings or at least some people do different things with their feelings because they're there's more to there's more to do I sort of think that about I, I'm always interested in how people differ from generation to generation and I would like to make clear I don't think that people are better or worse, but it's very interesting when I talk to my students and they can talk, they can write in coffee shops. Right. And that astonishes me. It is not that I think, what? You should not do that. <laughs> it is 100% like, oh, that is so interesting that your brain works in a different way than mine does. And that it's generational is that they're used to there being more noise, which means actually they're, better at shutting out that noise yeah. or making it useful for them. Or I think sometimes they can use the noise as a kind of wall to keep them in place. Whereas I can only hear the one person I hate who is talking two tables away from me. Yeah. I can't go into my own head in that way in a public space. What books would you like to recommend? All right. So I did line these up in my head because as I tell my students, the, when I'm asked generally, I could think, I read Lolita once. That's the only book I remember ever having read in my entire <laughs> life. Um, I recently finished reading Viva Lehrer's Golem Girl, oh, which yeah. is an extraordinary book. Um, and also illustrated with uh, her astonishing paintings. And I really love that. Um, I always like to recommend um, the work of Yun Lee but especially Where Reasons End, yeah. um, which is just an extraordinary 
book about grief that is also really funny in places. There's a lot of wordplay and argumentation. And I'll also recommend the book I, I mentioned earlier, Brenda Shaughnessy's The Octopus mm. Museum, which the um, epigraph for my uh, book is from. Um, and she's just one of my favorite poets. She's an astonishing, an astonishing poet. Thank you so much. It was a blast. Thank you so much for having me on, Maris. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.